This episode of The Outside Podcast is sponsored by Hydroflask, maker of beautifully designed insulated bottles, cups, coolers, and a range of gear for your outdoor kitchen. Hydroflask is also a company that believes that every adventure starts with two simple words. Let's go. I think I started climbing out of my crib. I just was like a climbing menace, I guess. And so my parents found a gym and they were like, here, <laughs> express yourself in here. Meet Alex Johnson, a two-time World Cup gold medalist in climbing. And I'm here to take you guys bouldering. Alex recommends that first-timers go to a climbing gym before heading outside. There's usually gym staff there to sort of show you the ropes, I guess, literally. But if you just can't wait to get your hands on real rock, bouldering is a great way to start. Bouldering is the most accessible discipline in the sport, and so it's like pad, shoes, chalk. That's really all you need. At least that's all the gear you'll need. Fuel is important, too. First things first, coffee. Definitely pack a cold brew in a mug. Alex brings hers in a Hydroflask 16-ounce bottle with a flex-sip lid for easy drinking. Hydration is super important, so I'll usually bring like a big 40-ounce bottle of water. If I take my dogs, I'll bring a couple of those because they drink a lot of water too. A 40-ounce Hydroflask wide mouth bottle keeps water for her and her best friends cool for up to 24 hours. Well, you want to go bouldering? And then there are the post-climb beers, which Alex stows in her Hydroflask 20-liter Day Escape soft cooler pack. I'll fill this with a bunch of beers in case I meet new friends out climbing and I can like hand out a beer and be friendly. Hydroflask wants you to get out there just like Alex, which is why all their insulated bottles and hydration packs are designed to keep your beverages at just the right temperature all day long. Shop for yourself or for the outdoor lovers on your holiday list this season at hydroflask.com. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. If you're a rock star, like a real rock star, in a band that sells albums by the millions and plays shows in front of tens of thousands of adoring fans, your happy place probably sounds something like this. This, of course, is Pearl Jam, one of the greatest rock bands of recent decades, playing alive one of their best-known songs. And this is definitely a happy place for Jeff Ament, the band's bassist and co-founder. The recording is from a 2018 show at the Washington Grizzly Stadium in Missoula, Montana. Jeff grew up in Montana, in the tiny town of Big Sandy. And for a number of years now, he has split his time between his home state and Seattle. Now, here's the sound of another one of Jeff's happy places. This is a skate park, and it's also in Montana. It's called Thunder Park. It's in the town of Browning on the Blackfeet Reservation. It was built in 2014 by Montana Pool Service, or MPS, a foundation that Jeff created to fund the development of skate parks in rural communities. To date, he's built close to 30, almost all of them in Montana. In some cases, Jeff, who's been skating since around age 12, will cover the entire cost of a park. He did that here in Browning, 
putting up some $300,000 to construct more than 12,000 square feet of rolling terrain. In other locations, he's covered 50 or $100,000 of the cost, or matched donations or funds raised by locals. For Jeff, the point isn't just to create concrete playgrounds so skaters have somewhere to rip. He wants to give young people in small towns similar to the one he grew up in a place to gather and to build community because they really need it. I, I know what it's like to, to be in an isolated area and I can only imagine what it would be like to be in a small town or a small community and to not have a crew. In early December, the United States Surgeon General warned of a mental health crisis among American youth. Not surprisingly, depression and anxiety spiked during the pandemic. But they have been a growing problem among young people for years. Research indicates that at least part of the cause is our increasingly online lives, which can cause loneliness and lead to suicidal ideation. Rural communities are clearly vulnerable. Montana has one of the highest suicide rates in the country, and it's even worse on the state's reservations. What kids everywhere need is real-life human connection. And as Jeff sees it, that happens best in a space they can call their own, when they have a chance to form their identities alongside each other. I think almost the, the best thing that I've witnessed is when you see like a crew of kids like coalesce into like this really tight-knit crew. You know, the, the crew up in Thunder Park, there's like eight or nine young men up there. And just even the way they talk about each other, it's just a really, it's a really special, like beautiful way that they care about one another. So a mega successful rock star starts doing good by others. It's hardly earth-shaking news, but the depth of Jeff's commitment is remarkable. Beyond the financial contributions, the guy is putting in serious physical labor, helping with the construction efforts and even sweeping out the terrain features between sessions. He's also become a friend and positive role model for some of the teens who frequent the parks. So why? What compels him to put so much energy into that effort? To understand that, you have to start with how Jeff fell in love with skating in the first place on a family trip to California some 45 years ago. How does a kid living in rural Montana in the 1970s and 80s get pulled into skating? Well, you know, I mean, you know, the great thing about my family growing up, every summer we got in the car for a couple of weeks and we would go visit. <clears throat> my mom had six brothers and sisters and my dad had 12 brothers and sisters. And my dad had two sisters that lived in the San Jose area. One lived in San Leandro and one lived in Sunnyvale. And those particular cousins were like the ones closest to my age, the boys. My one cousin, Gary, he was two years older than me. And I, and I just sort of looked up to him like an older brother. That summer, which I think was like, I, I think the summer of 1976, we, uh, Went down to visit and I remember like waking up in his bedroom and he had a giant python in a <laughs> in a terrarium or, you know, aquarium or something. And I knew at that point that like, it was going to be a really fun trip. <laughs> we ended up spending most of the, you know, four or five days that we were there. He he had just built a skateboard in his wood shop and, uh, and had Roadrider 4s on it. Some of the first year thing. 
skateboard wheels. I had ridden a skateboard before, but I'd never ridden one that was that smooth and turned that well. And so there was brand new blacktop out in front of their house. And we just spent the whole time sharing his skateboard. And on the way out the door, he gave me a copy of Skateboarder Magazine. And so I had this 20 some hour ride home where that was the only thing I had to look at. And then looking at the photos and going like, oh, the potential is there in those photos. Like I can ride up a wall and, and turn on a wall that's vertical. And, and it was just the whole, everything that went along with it. It was like the way that they look, they're wearing sort of colorful gear and you know, the, the girls were pretty and like, they, you know, they just, they just looked whatever, you know, I thought cool was that, that was it. The imagery that I saw in that magazine, like it was so powerful to me that I was like, that looks like the most fun that anybody's having anywhere on the planet right now. As soon as I got home, I was all in. But being all in on skateboarding, when you're in big Sandy, Montana, a town of some 600 people, that took work. It was tough. I mean, we, we did not have paved roads. The only paved road in our town was Main Street, and every other street was dirt. And so there was a couple of new sidewalks. They, they had just poured this new slab by the train depot. And so that was the spot, you know, like we would we would put Coke cans down and we would like run slalom around the Coke cans. Jeff mail ordered skateboarding gear that he saw in the back of magazines. And contrary to what you might expect, his parents were fully supportive of his new habit. It was the beauty of growing up in a small isolated town is that there wasn't there wasn't the group of older skateboard kids that were smoking weed and being the bad example. Like I was the first one. <laughs> so I could sort of create whatever environment that would work for my parents and work for me. And I didn't really get introduced to that till I went to the state fair in 1977 and they had a ramp. That was the first time that I'd met skaters from other places. And some of those kids were sort of like the Dogtown guys, like they had scraggly hair and they were smoking cigarettes. And I think if those kids would have lived in my town, then maybe my parents would have been a little bit more apprehensive. Jeff's dad, who grew up on a dairy farm in Minnesota, was the town barber in Big Sandy, while also raising chickens, pigs, and a few cows. He didn't really get skateboarding, but still, he found a creative way to connect with his son's interest. On the weekends, I would go help my dad hay or go into the chicken coop and shovel all the chicken shit out of the (laughs) chicken coop. You know, his play or his fun was sort of like some job. You know, like the better, one of the better jobs, you know, like, you know, the thing that he related to with skateboarding was that he was going to teach me how to build a skateboard and he was going to teach me how to build a ramp. I think it was almost polar opposite of other stories that I've heard in terms of their relationship with the parents and skateboarding. My dad was all in on it. Every summer I built and rebuilt ramps and my dad was right there alongside of me, helping me cut you know, the templates to curve the ramp. And, and it was at the very beginning of ramp building. There were pictures of these ramps, and my dad was like, oh, I know how to do that. So Jeff skated a lot, but it wasn't the only thing that he was into. I, I just have this memory of being a kid and just, like, waking up in the morning, eating breakfast, getting on my bike, going over to a friend's house, starting up a game, and then going home to eat lunch, and then getting back on your bike, and you already had a plan for what you are going to do that afternoon. And that might have been going on a long bike ride, 
It might have been that your other friend had a mini bike and you're gonna take turns riding the mini bike. It might have been somebody had some firecrackers, you know. We got pretty creative in terms of keeping our days full and and I don't ever remember being bored, which is kind of crazy, you know, because there wasn't much there. You know, we didn't have a movie theater, we we had a bowling alley that had one pinball machine. That was kind of the that was kind of the big excitement. I had a really great group of friends, a lot of which are, I'm still tight with, that we just jumped from thing to thing. And so as I got older, I just assumed that that's what you did. You you go to football practice and you come home and you eat and then you go skate your ramp for three hours and then maybe study a little bit before you go to bed. <laughs> when he was little, Jeff's mom had introduced him to music and to art, passions that he held on to even as he grew into an athletic teenager who played on multiple sports teams. In high school, he was lucky to have a friend with an older brother who had an impressive record collection. He discovered Parliament Funkadelic, early punk bands like the New York Dolls and the Stooges, and hard rock outfits like ACDC. As Jeff explains it, this was the upside of living in a really small town. You could be into everything. I don't ever remember anybody telling me that I couldn't do something. That's kind of a cool freedom to have. We got to do anything and everything that we wanted to do. I, I don't remember once anybody telling me like, ah, oh, that skateboarding stuff's stupid or, you know, punk rock's stupid or whatever, you know, like, I do remember girls saying like that they thought punk rock sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Jeff ignored that. And as he got to his senior year in high school, he got rather ambitious in his attempts to combine the things that he was into. There was that time, right after his basketball team lost their third straight game to start the season, that he figured, maybe we just need to be a little more punk rock. We were on the bus going home. It was kind of a dour, quiet ride home. And I was just like, God, we got to do something to save the season. Like, we should be better than this. And so I got everybody together and I said, hey, let's all go. My dad was a barber. I said, hey, let's go down to my dad's on Monday and let's shave our heads. We'll be like this punk rock basketball team. And no girls are gonna date you <laughs> after you shave your head, but but we're gonna we're gonna be this crew. And the main seven guys or seven, eight guys that played on the team that got most of the minutes, I got five of us to do it. So we came out the next game and we had like little spike wrist bracelets, you know, the little bit of <laughs> punk rock stuff that you could find ordering it from like Cream Magazine or wherever we were getting this stuff from. We came out and we had our head shaved, you know, for this game at home. And I just remember there was like a collective, like what the hell is going on? Cause it was, it was 1980 and it was kind of feathered hair and it was, you know, and we, we proceeded to win the next three or four games in a row. Cause we had this, this different energy. I think in some ways that was sort of the beginning of me understanding like what it might be like to be in a band. We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, professional climber and Hydroflask ambassador Alex Johnson told us how she packs her coffee, water, and beer for a day of bouldering in insulated bottles and coolers. Now she's back to give us an important lesson in terminology. If you want to sound cool when you go bouldering for the first time, here are a few key words. One is crag, that's sort of just the zone where you're going. Two is 
problem. The root from start to finish in bouldering is called a problem. Send is when you start something from the start and you get to the top and you top it out, you finish it, you have sent it. While bouldering can seem pretty laid back, Alex is still very deliberate in her approach to safety. The first thing I'm gonna do is unpack my gear and sort of suss out the landing and lay out my pad. So let's say you get to a spot in your climb where you're not feeling safe or you're not feeling comfortable and you don't think you can make the next move, totally okay to bail. Safety is always the most important and no send is ever worth it. With a crash pad in place, it's go time. Pop my shoes on, chalk my hands up, and then pull on and go. Nothing beats the view from the top. You like top out a boulder, you stand on top of it and you look up and see like the canyon and the leaves changing and the blue sky, it's so gorgeous. Hydroflask has partnered with Alex and other inspiring outdoor professionals on a new video series called How We Go that has them sharing tips to help people of all skill levels and backgrounds get more out of their favorite activities. Climbing's growing. We're also seeing a boom in the LGBTQ community and BIPOC in climbing. And I think it's super important to just continue like creating that really safe and comfortable environment, making everyone feel welcome. To watch episodes of How We Go on everything from camp cooking and yoga to fly fishing and mountain biking, follow Hydroflask on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. I'm Alex, and this is How I Go. Hey everyone, this is Outside Producer Marin Larson. Before we get back to our story, I want to let you know about some big additions we've made to Outside Plus memberships. Now, in addition to having access to exclusive content across our expansive digital network and print subscriptions to Outside Magazine and any one of our sister publications, you'll receive a $50 credit at the Outside Shop to use on gear from top brands, subscriptions to premium navigation apps Gaia GPS and Trailforks, access to 600 hours of member-only films and television series, discounts on epic trips with our travel partner Modern Adventure, led by Outside Editors, and unlimited access to masterclasses in topics ranging from fitness training to skiing to backcountry cooking. Best of all, from now through the end of 2021, we are running our best deals yet on Outside Plus, as well as the option to give membership as a gift, including the ability to mail a gift card. Learn more at outsideonline.com podplus. That's P-O-D-P-L-U-S. When Jeff Ament was growing up in Big Sandy, Montana, he did everything he wanted to. He played team sports, and he listened to punk rock. He made art, and he rode a skateboard. That gave him multiple circles of friends, which is exactly what young people need to figure out who they are and where they want to go. When he moved to Missoula to study graphic design at the University of Montana, he thought it would be more of the same. But instead, he quickly learned that not everyone was cool with him hanging out with so many different crowds. It was shocking to me that people were sort of telling me that without using the terminology that was even inappropriate then, but they would say, you can't hang out with those guys or those, you know, whatever. And it was the guys that I played basketball with and, and a couple of the guys that were on the football team. I was hanging out with them and they were saying like, hey, who's that guy that I saw you with in the in the food service yesterday. And I was like, oh, that's my friend Bruce. They're like, is he a, you know, is he gay? And I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And I remember there was like, there was about a month period where I was like torn between these worlds and, and I was almost being uh, made to choose. It just got uncomfortable. You know, they were sort of like 
actively telling me that I, if I wanted to do this, I couldn't do that. And at one point I was just like, I was like, fuck that, man. Like I have way more in common with my friend Bruce, my friend Randy and my friend Charlie, these guys that I skated with and listened to music with than I did the guys on the football and basketball teams. So I quit, I quit playing basketball. I, I was on the JV team at University of Montana at that time. That was sort of where the road shifted. That shift would eventually lead to rock and roll history. Jeff left college midway through his second year, and he moved to Seattle with his Missoula band, Deranged Diction. He started meeting other musicians, and in 1990, co-founded Pearl Jam. Their debut album, 10, would go on to become one of the best-selling rock albums of all time and be a major influence in the rise of grunge. This would put Jeff and his bandmates in a position to make impacts that had nothing to do with music. We had decided pretty early on, like 93 or something, that when we played shows in Seattle, we were going to take all the money we made from those Seattle shows and we were going to donate them to local organizations. And that was sort of the beginning of the band philanthropy. Up to that point, I'd never had a, you know, I was living month to month <laughs> my whole life, <laughs> pretty much. So to be in a position to have like a chunk of change, you know, we'd play two, three shows in Seattle and we would come out of it with, each of us would have $30,000, $40,000 to give away locally. Jeff made his first donations to a hospice serving AIDS patients and to the creation of a skate park at the Seattle Center. At the time, he had no idea that this would be the beginning of something that would become a huge part of his life. For a while, things went slowly. He contributed to a park that opened in Missoula in 2006, then to another some 40 miles north, then to a park in Helena, Montana. In 2010, he championed the creation of a skate park in Big Sandy, which, coming so many years after he'd built ramps in his backyard with his dad, felt special. And then came the park in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Jeff had grown up near a Montana reservation called Rocky Boy, and he was familiar with the challenges that these communities faced. After he'd started building skate parks, he had a series of conversations with an old friend named Jim Murphy, who kept saying that they had to build one at Pine Ridge. And finally, like the third time, I was like, dude, like next summer we're doing it. Like with enough talk, like we're having these same conversations over again and nothing's happening. I said, if you and I have to go out there and just build a mini ramp, that's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're like next year, let's set aside like 10 days and let's just like make something happen. They connected with Mark Hubbard, founder of a skate park building company called Grindline, and also with a Native American artist named Walt Poirier, who grown up skating at Pine Ridge. And he's like one of the most contagious positive storytellers that you can imagine. And he, he knew what they needed and he knew how to do it. In his head, he knew that it was going to save lives. He was the first person that I heard say skateboarding saves lives. And I remember at the time I kind of rolled my eyes like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. It's like, makes your life better. But... And then once we went to Pine Ridge and got Mark Hubbard and Grindline involved and all of that, like, Watching that whole thing go down and watching how affected Mark Hubbard was 
when he showed up, he was like, we're just going to buy tents and we're going to sleep on site and we'll save the money that we're spending on these $100 night hotel rooms and we'll just build more park. Grindline and, and, and Mark did that whole park at cost. Like Mark didn't pay himself for six weeks working on that job. And to watch like the local kids, like there was a group of like five or six local kids who were like coming down every day and they were helping out and they were shoveling dirt into wheelbarrows and moving the dirt over to another section of the park where they needed it. And to see how powerful that was to see like this community of kids came out of the building of that skate park feeling like this is our park, like we built this park. It was such a great thing to witness. You know, this is how you do it. You you get the kids to buy in by like being a part of the process and you you give them ownership and you remind them over and over that this is your park. You help build it, you help raise the money for it. It's yours now. We've had the biggest successes with these parks when that's the scenario. Those are the ones that have sustained like a real scene in their town and, and real pride around their skate park. In 2014, Jeff would help build three more parks all in Montana, including Thunder Park on the Blackfeet Reservation. During the opening ceremony, Blackfeet Chief Earl Oldperson gave Jeff a Blackfeet name, Holds Water, to honor the work that Jeff had done to create a new space for his people. They refer to it as Iyokim, and that's what I gave Jeff, Holds Water, because beavers held Holds Water. So that's your Indian name. And to see like 50 kids, like the last couple hours of the day, 50 kids were like rolling around that park like they owned it. They'd already developed a lot of skills just on their own, completely isolated, no help from anybody. And that was when it really clicked for me. I was like, oh, this could be, this could be a game changer, you know, to do this for these kids in these isolated spots. Since then, Jeff has revved up Montana Pool Service's efforts. They've built or added to 19 skate parks since 2015, and their plans for the next year include at least three more parks on Indian Country in Montana and Idaho. Throughout it all, Jeff has remained decidedly humble about his work. When I asked him how the successes of the parks made him feel, he was very wary of expressing anything that resembled pride. I I, I don't want to feel like I'm... I'm in this for anything other than the activity of gifting this. And in the process, I have been able to be a part of some pretty special moments, but I haven't had any real expectation for the outcome of it other than like, I think this could be a positive thing. Just to be witness to these groups of kids and to sort of be up close and and sometimes they share stuff. They might even overshare a little bit, but they just share really personal stuff. I just feel lucky that I can, that I'm in, I'm sort of in a position to be like a good example and somebody who listens without judgment. And sometimes they have questions about what I do, but for the most part, like me being a Pearl Jam really isn't a part of the equation. I don't know what I'm doing, so. <laughs> There's not really a big plan for any of it. And we're just sort of like going with the feeling. I, I'm a big believer in momentum. You know, when you're making a record, it's so critical to have like all five guys like 
feeling that momentum at the same time. And it sort of feels like with MPS, there's like this little vein of momentum that I feel right now that I recognize from years of making music with people. And and it just feels like there could be a, our sweet spot is still coming up just to sort of shine a light on rural America and what's going on in these places and uh, what's going on with our first peoples. I think most people, you know, in the cities across the country probably have no idea what's happening in these areas. And so it's, it just feels like all of a sudden we have a little bit of a platform that hopefully will allow the people in these communities to tell their, tell their story. Speaking of making music and telling stories, Jeff is still doing that too. Just before the pandemic started, he was set to go on tour with Pearl Jam for their Gigaton album, and then everything stopped. But while most of us were binging Netflix in 2020, he used the lockdowns as motivation to go into creative overdrive. At his Montana home with his wife, he attempted to write a song or produce a piece of artwork every day. The result is his fourth solo album, I Should Be Outside, plus more than 180 painted portraits, a selection of which appear on the album cover. The songs on I Should Be Outside touch on a range of topics, in part because Jeff remains a kid from a small town who's still into everything. He plays basketball and he makes art. He writes music and he skates. This can be difficult socially, as Jeff learned in his college days, because it has him straddling opposing communities. But all these different people helped make him who he is, something he honors in a song called For the Ones. A friend of mine, Simon Smith, who's a guy that I've skateboarded with in Montana for about 20 years, he had seen a picture that I had posted of my dad, which is in the very same location as the picture that I put on the front of the lyric book. It's the end of this ridge line that basically looks out into the plains. I had posted this picture of my dad because that's truly his happy spot. When he's out there, he talks about the Sweetgrass Hills, which you can see to the north in Canada, and he you can just tell he's in his zone. saw that picture and he made this beautiful stencil and painted this skateboard with this stencil work of my dad on this ridge line and he sent it to me on the back of it he said this is for the ones like your dad this is to the ones for the ones this is to That day I wrote, I wrote this song and I just thought I just thought about like the importance of you know all these figures in your life that make you who you are. They're all very diverse and have very different ways of thinking about God and politics and sexuality and all everything. So it's like it's just sort of like owning it, you know, and being able to laugh about it and and also like 
have differences and just and just leading with love and leading with positivity and a smile and and trying not to lead with like being pissed off and judgmental and condescending and all the shit that is just tearing us apart. You can learn more about Montana Pool Service and make a donation to their work at montanapoolservice.com. Jeff Amen's solo album, I Should Be Outside, is available wherever you get your music. And you can check out some of his artwork for the project on Instagram, at Official Amen. Pearl Jam is scheduled to tour again in 2022. Dates are posted on the band's website, pearljam.com. My name is Michael Roberts, and I produce this episode. Original music by Louis Weeks. This episode was brought to you by Hydroflask, maker of beautifully designed insulated bottles, cups, and coolers, and a company that believes that every adventure starts with two simple words. Let's go. Shop Hydroflask products for yourself or the outdoor lovers on your holiday list this season at hydroflask.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. If you're not a member yet, now is a great time to join, as we're offering the best deals of the year, and we keep adding amazing benefits. Learn more at outsideonline.com slash pod plus. That's P-O-D-P-L-U-S. 